your Bibles and turn to Romans 12 tonight. I encourage you tonight to take some notes if you have a pen and some paper. I know this is a familiar text, maybe one of the most familiar texts to you. But we're going to look at it in its context tonight. I'm hoping that it expands your grasp of it. There's a lot of concepts. I'm pretty sure we're not going to finish everything I want to do. Um, We're going to go through the whole chapter, which obviously is not happening tonight. So we may be on this a week or two more. But let me read just at least the first two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's people have always been a countercultural community. It doesn't take long in the Old Testament before you realize that and, and how much in depth the Bible goes into that. Uh, God called his people out of Egypt, and you read the texts in Exodus 9, 4, 11, 7, all the commandments, and the key, one of the key words in Leviticus is distinction, and how God makes distinction between clean and unclean, between Israel and the Egyptians, and they were to demonstrate that on every level of their lives. It can be a little pedantic to be in Leviticus to see all the things you can and can't do and the clothes and the, and, and the foods and all the things, you, you know, all that. But all of that was stressing the point that God's people are different. And I like to say it this way, not odd different, but God different. Um, we're not out to be different for no reason, um, but we're to be different for God reasons. Um, and let me just quickly parallel that if I can, or contrast it. Odd different. When I was growing up, I was in a very, very strict fundamentalist church. And the girls in our church had to, I don't even know if you know what these are, but culottes, they were like really, really baggy shorts that came to your knee, if not beyond. And there were people in our church that we had youth, when I was youth pastor, they had, um, we would go to skiing activities or snow tubing activities, and they would wear, you know, the snow clothes, you know, like the suspender overalls all the way down and the winter coats. And their parents would still make the girls wear their culottes over the winter clothes and the, the stuff that they had because that was what was considered godly. Um, God different to me would be uh, feminine, femininity and modesty. Um, we weren't, growing up, men were not allowed to have facial hair, which would make me now a rebel. Um, but it's biblical masculinity that we're after, right? Um, not just rules like that. Um, not using certain instruments in church. You know, I, I grew up, I, you probably don't know this about me, but I play the guitar. And uh, I, I learned that growing up. And, uh, but we weren't allowed to use guitars in my church because... Rock and roll singers use guitars, and therefore you couldn't do that. Instead of emphasizing really good, biblically sound, theological music, um, we had those types of rules. We couldn't play with playing cards. Um, We couldn't play pool because they gambled in pool halls and smoked and did all kinds of other things. 
Instead of, you know, really stressing that we need to have godly entertainment, right? And not be uh, looking at things or watching things or whatever it was, playing things that would be ungodly in and of themselves. So I I grew up thinking uh, more odd different than God different. I never really learned to think through issues and have discernment. There was just a, a codification of external rules that we needed to follow. And if you did them, now this is an exaggeration, it almost at times seemed that you didn't really matter what you were like any other time, as long as you didn't have your hair too long and you wore the right length of skirt and did all those things, then everybody was pretty happy with what you were. Um, Paul is going to teach us that that's not what he's looking for in a response to the gospel. Um, If you read the book of Romans, you'll know this, that the gospel is explained in explicit details in very theological and practical ways, all the way from Romans 1 through 11. I mean, it's a very dense, perhaps the most dense theological section in any of Paul's epistles. But he gets to our section in chapter 12, and he's beginning a new section by the very first words, I appeal to you, that is his language that he uses in his epistles to say, I'm starting a new thought. So in other words, he's got this whole 11 chapters of explaining to you in incredible detail the gospel for both Jew and Gentile, and that everyone's a sinner, and how you can be justified and made right with God. And now he's going to say to us, which is our part in the next couple of weeks, this is how you live this out. See? So this is how you live out being different. This is how you live out what it means to be a Christian. Now, I want to tell you, because I'm not going to say it probably again later tonight, but most of the pronouns in chapter 12, especially in the first two verses, are in the plural. So although this is all true for for individuals as Christians, Paul is telling you this is what we are to be like as a community of Christians, right? So let me tell you, I only want to do two things tonight, and I'm not even sure we're going to get those two done. But I want to tell you, based on my idea of what the text thinks in context about being a counter-cultural community, um, I want to show you two things. The basis of a counter-cultural community and the behavior of it. And I want to use these two verses and then some framework. I want to show you, lay out how the whole chapter looks, and then we're going to come back and fill it in in the next week or two, all right? So the basis. What is the basis of living differently, all right? I was told the basis of living differently was is because my mom and dad said so, or the pastor preached that, or said that to us. Um, God has a little bit of a different basis, and he tells us right off the bat, I appeal to you, therefore. Now see that? He's going to say, I want to attach all that I've said, not just right before it, although that's true, but all through chapters, all the way leading up to this chapter, I want to tell you, I've been making a point, and here's the climax. Here's the application. Here is our response to living and being part of the gospel. Here's what he says. Therefore, brothers, now watch, agency, by the mercies of God. I was told growing up, trying to be odd different, that it was mostly governed by law. That this is what you do because God said be holy. And if you want to be holy, this is what you do. Follow these laws, rules. And God says, no, what I want you to do is respond and live a certain way, including holiness and all that goes with it. But I want it to be a response, not of law, but love. I want you to be moved by the mercies of God. Now, if you would, look back. Because there are 
chapter 9, look back here real quick, and then we're going to do this a number of times. So if you're underlining, circling, do all that kind of stuff. He, 9 through 11, is a whole argument in of itself about how it means to be Jew and Gentile. And God has a plan for the Gentiles, but he hasn't forgotten Israel and all that that goes with. But the beginning of chapter 9 and the end of chapter 11 are bookends to these big, huge section in 9 through 11. But it, both parts of it start with mercy. And I want to show you them. And it says, chapter 9 and verse 15. For he says to Moses, and this is a quoting of Exodus 34, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So not depends on human will or exertion, but on God, there it is, who has mercy. See, so he's telling you, you don't get saved. It's but God sovereignly choosing you. It's not because you were worth it. It's not because you looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would believe. It's not because of anything inherently good in you. That's not the basis of God giving you the gospel and you getting saved. The basis of it is his mercy and his compassion. And he goes on to say, for verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, he says. So verse 18, so he has mercy, there it is again, on whom he wills, and whoever wills, he pardons. Verse number 23, he goes down to say, in order, why does he do that? He chooses some as vessels of wrath, other ones he chooses, it says, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. So again, God chooses some people as vessels of wrath and others as vessels of mercy. Why? Because of his kindness, his compassion. It's not any merit or basis of our own. God's mercy is sovereign. He did not have to give it to you. That's what mercy means. Mercy means God not giving you what you do deserve, his wrath. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. That's his forgiveness, right? There's a difference. There's opposite ends of the spectrum. Mercy is you deserve wrath and condemnation and judgment. And in Christ Jesus, God did not give that to you. And the reason he didn't is because he is merciful. The old hymn, I don't know if you know it, it goes, the mercies of God, what a theme for my soul. Oh, I never could number them all. They are, more, they are more than the stars in the heavenly dome or the sands of the wave-beaten shore. In other words, take all the stars in the heavens, all the sands on the beaches, and you couldn't begin to come close to the number of mercies that God has shown me. That's the number of mercies. But the songwriter goes on to tell you about the nature of mercies. Look what he says. For mercy so great, listen, what return can I make? For mercies so constant and sure... That's the nature of them. They never stop. They're always coming. You can count on them. I'll love him. I'll serve him with all that I have as long as my life shall endure. You see what he's saying? Mercies are the motivator. See the question? Romans 12, 1 and 2, starting there and all through the chapter. You know what it is? It's the answer to the hymn writer's question what return can I make in light of all God's mercies? And that's what he says. Look at chapter 11 now, right before our, our text. Chapter 11, verses 31. So they too, meaning the Gentiles, have now been disobedient in order 
that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy, right? For God has consigned them all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. See how he goes over mercy again? 9 and 11. See, God's glory is showing his compassion. So here's the question now that Paul raises. You've seen the mercies of God, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Jewish person or whether you're a Gentile. You have seen that God's sovereign mercy has been kind to you. You didn't deserve it. You deserved wrath. That's the gospel. Instead, he saved you. Now here's the question. What return can you make? How will you respond to it? See, that's what Paul wants to know. The songwriter said, I'll love him and I'll serve him all my days as long as my life shall endure. That's my response. That's my return. That's what I can make. Watch, though. Not out of a debtor's ethic. Meaning, I don't respond and say, God, I'm going to give you my whole life and live a certain way because i got to pay you back. We already know we could never pay him back. It's not out of a performance. This is not a performance to earn or merit God's grace that he can give us more. It's constant and sure sovereignly. It's not because you and I are earning it. It's not a work response. Listen, it is a worship response. The little text says in 12.1 at the end that this is your spiritual worship. It literally is two words, logical liturgy. That's the two Greek words. It is, we would say today, this is your reasonable worship. This is what you ought to do. You know what our response to mercies ought to be? Worship. And by that, he doesn't mean in a liturgical way in a church service. No, what he says is, you know what you ought to do? You know what the return you can make is for God? You live your life as a life of liturgy. In other words, your whole life... Everything about it, the all-encompassing—here it is, all-encompassing. You worship God in everything. That's what this text is about. And then, chapter twelve, after verse two, is it's going to unfold and say, "How do you do that inside the church, and how do you do it outside the church?" And here's the thing. Those verses, they're not really evenly set. It's not like there's a block of verses inside the church and there's a block of verses to how you do people outside the church. They're interspersed. You know why? Because here's what he wants you to know. Because it ought to always be the same. See, you should respond to God's mercies in such worship that here's how you know you're doing it. Not vertical. The rest of chapter 12 is all horizontal. In other words, you know how I know if I've been moved by the magnitude of mercy, by the way I, pe- I treat people in here and out there. We're going to learn that together. Spiritual worship. So here's Paul's countercultural argument. We ought to be a different kind of people, and it's what it's characterized by this. Different because we're moved by mercy. Moved by mercy. Now, I'm going to get real detailed, and I want you to underline a lot Because go home and study this so you're even better prepared to come back next week, right? There are some vocabulary words. Stay with me. Follow me. There are some vocabulary words in Romans 12 that are also used throughout the first part of this book, mainly in chapter 1. And I want to tell you this. I'm going to show you in very much detail that Paul expects Romans 1, 12, 1, and 2 to be a life that you live that is completely different than all the other people outside this church and who are not believers. 
We are an alternative community. We are antithetical. We are completely opposite of what everybody else. And it doesn't mean we're in culottes over your right, snow stuff. Okay, you know, it's complete. I'm not mocking. I'm just saying it's not that. It's way, way more complex and different than that. It's way more holistic than that. Some of the words are your spiritual worship. Now watch. Back in chapter 1, here's what he said about people who are pagan and still in the world. This is what they've done. They have rejected Romans 1, 24 and 5. They've rejected worshiping the creator and have instead chosen to worship the creation. And here's what they've done. They have chosen to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So put this together. Worship and your bodies. What does he say in this passage? It's your spiritual worship. And in verse 1 it says, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies to God. You see what he's been saying? Hey, you know what pagans do? Unsaved people, chapter 1. They don't worship God. They worship creation. So here's a result of it. They take their bodies and they do things. They become transgender. They homosexual and lesbian. You know why? Because it's a result. Look, it's the lifestyle they've chosen to live because they don't worship the creator. Ready? But you do. You do. You worship God. You worship him. And therefore, what, you know what's different? Your body's different. So the word worship, bodies, present, all those are in chapter 1, and they all describe unsaved people and what they do in their life because of who they worship and how they look at their bodies and how they give it to themselves because they worship God, not God, but the world and themselves. And it has results. And here's what he wants you to say. And you are completely different than that. See? So the right response to God's mercy is not odd different, God different. God-soaked, God-saturated, God-satisfied people. What Paul is basically saying is he wants you to behave and become the gospel that you say that you believe. So let me ask you a question. Give me some answers. Why do Christians struggle with being different? Why is it that we don't like that? And I'm going to add, I think this is true. And why do I think our young people like it even less? Why is it that we struggle with being different than the world around us? Why do we find that so hard to do? It's built in to what we are as God's people. It always has been. Why do we struggle? It's rhetorical, so answer what do you think, why do we struggle so much with it? And if you, you don't think we do, we really do. Yes. Yes, I think that's the first place to start, right? It's human nature to be accepted. How many of you love it when people don't like you? If someone hates your guts, you want to applaud. Anyone like that? I'm sure there might be some in the world somewhere. Well, we all like to be popular, right? We like to be accepted. We like people to think well of us. It hurts us when we think that people might not think well of us and dislike us, and, right? So keep going. Build on that. So when you really want to be liked, and by the way, is that wrong, Sue? No. 
No, it's good. Everyone should, it's built in. We want people to like us, accept us. That's not a bad thing. When does it become bad? Sandy? When it becomes an idol. Good. What does that mean? Okay, good. So it becomes an idol. So I want it so bad, worship. I want it so bad, right, that I want it more than God. So I please people more than I please God. So I'm willing to let God go, what he thinks is right go, his standards go, right and wrong go in his mind, because I really got to have so-and-so like me from my girlfriend or my wife or spouse or my boss at work or a friend at church or someone I'm trying to impress. It's a wide spectrum, is it not? We struggle with it. Now let me ask you this. What is the most difficult area to be different in and why? And this is not one answer as being the right answer. It could be different based on individuals, of course. But what is one, you think, what is the biggest area that's really hard to be different. And why is that so? Why do you think it's true? Somebody. How about work? Yes, go ahead, Sarah Joy. Right, right. So I'm gonna, I, that's a good principle because I think you're saying recreational sports are great, but a lot of them take place on Sunday, which is, by the way, whatever a lot of, almost everybody else does, including God's people, right, sometimes. Yes, and the other mom, so you, you're going to be, here's the hard thing about being different, right? You're the only one or one of the very few. Isn't that hard? You don't want to be the only one that's not doing it. And then people ask you, hey, why aren't you doing that? Where are you guys at? You tell them and they go, oh, really? <laughs> right? So you get that. Right? You're the only one. So it's a struggle. Why? Because you're standing alone. You're standing out. It draws attention to you that you might not rather have. Right? But you're holding on to the things that you think our priorities ought to be. Super, yep. That's, that makes it hard in raising your kids. What else? Yeah, um, James, sorry. We, we do a lot of lunches at work where, you know, people, um, you know, we get together and have beverages. And it's always hard for me to get something that is not alcoholic because everybody's drinking beer and vodka and whatever. And I'm going for the bottle of water. And they're like, you're not going to drink it? No, no, I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> so it's, it's always kind of like this odd thing. But, um, you know, I'm cool with it. But they're like, no, you're only drinking water? I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. I, I'm okay with drinking water. But it's always something that people just look, look at me like it's strange, you know, that I'm not drinking alcohol with everyone else. Yeah. You should say I'm having root beer. <laughs> <laughs> it was Don's birthday the other night, and we went crazy. Don and I had root beer. And I said, no. Right, because, again, you you'll be the only one, you know, toting the water bottle, right? Right, someone else. Go ahead, Robert. I was going to say it's hard to be different in a world where, like, for example, I know a lot of people who they're okay with Jesus, but they're not okay with him being exclusively God. And so, like, it's hard to be the, the person in the room that 
No, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're the only person again, isn't it? Only one drinking the water, only one not playing on Sunday, the only one saying, Jesus, it's, it's hard being your only one. So therefore, it's, it's obvious then we don't need to come to church. We don't need encouragement from other people, do we? We can hang solo on our own, Lone Ranger stuff. We, can do, we don't need anybody to help us out and pray for us, right? No, that's why, see, why the plurals are, the, the, the pronouns are plural. This is a community project, isn't it? What we're talking about. Underline these, would you? The structure of this entire chapter is building the entire antithetical argument of an alternative community. And let me show you. It's a, it's a structure in Greek, and you can see it in English. It's this structure. Not, but. Not this, but this. And there are six of them. All right? The first one is the one we're trying to tackle tonight, and we're not going to make it. But 12.2 says, to give you show, so circle this. 12.2, do not, there it is, see, do not be conformed to this world, but. See the first one? Not this, but this. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Verse 3, it says, if I can read my own writing, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So there it is. Not to think of himself more highly, but to think sober. Don't think this way, but think this way. Verse 16. It begins and ends the chapter, which you know I'm fond of. They, they, they kind of bracket the whole thing to give you the idea that everything in between the beginning and end of these verses show you how to live out that alternative antithetical lifestyle. Verse 16 of chapter 12, it reads, Live in harmony with one another. Here's the knot. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So there it is. Don't be up here high. Haughty is the word actually means high, often in the sky, but lowly. So don't be, don't be this, not this, but this. Verse 19. Beloved, never estrange yourselves. Don't. Never is not, not avenge yourselves, but what? Leave it to the wrath of God. You don't take out the wrath, not that, but let God do it. Verse 20. To the contrary, believe it or not, that's only one word in the Greek, and it's the word strongest adversative, but. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For by so doing you will weep. Uh, put coals on his head. So not avenging yourself, second one, but what? Not hurting your enemies, but feeding them. See the difference? Not this, but this. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but, see, not being overcome by evil, but, in the contrast, be overcome evil with good. You see what he's doing He's building a framework about how they're going to live out the theology of the gospel. What does it look like? You know what it looks like? It looks like we're making choices. It looks like we're not doing this, but we're doing this. Is that not just life? We always have choices. We have options. See, and, and what we have to learn to do is being able to be different by making the right choices. Now, I want to show you the areas, and we'll be done, and I'm not going to be able to say much. Being a Christian and not being what I call worldly, the not this, but this mentality, involves two things. One of which 
in our circles, we are notorious for leaving it out. Okay? Number one, we think different. And number two, we act or live different. We are big in our circles on the living part and very specifically living the part. And we have, say, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. But we're not very big at emphasizing, by and large, the thinking part, right? So I want to show you something that leads us to the last point. Not only the basis of countercultural behavior, which is mercies, but what is the behavior of it? What does it look like when you're moved and motivated by God's mercies? How does it play itself out every day? There's two processes, and I'm going to show them to you. One's positive and one's negative. See all the terms in verse 1? Present yourselves, living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, spiritual worship. See all those words thrown together? They are all pagan ritual terms used in the culture of Romans in this way. They are talking about animal sacrifices made in temples. These are temple terms. This is what you do when you brought your animal sacrifice, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish or lost, when they bought animal sacrifices to appease their gods, their gods had to know this. They would not accept them. By the way, look at verse 1. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. Go back there. That holy, acceptable to God. And then he says it again in verse 2 at the end. Acceptable. See it? Acceptable. If you want your life, we would say, to be acceptable to God, the God, not not the chapter one of Romans God, the false gods. But when you bring yourself and you're acceptable to God, here's what has to be true of your life. Holy, pleasing. Why? Because you couldn't offer animals that had bummed legs. You couldn't offer spots. They couldn't be blind. There couldn't be some blemish or defect. You had to have complete ones. They had to be holy. And I don't mean holy as meaning they didn't sin. Holy meaning set apart with no problems. See, you ha- so you, this is all temple worship terms. So he said, if spiritual worship, which is your right response to mercy, here's what you do. You have to consider your whole life a continual process of worship. Here's what that looks like. The term is living sacrifice. Now, when you went to pagan temples... Even in Jewish temples, all the sacrifices they brought to offer up to God to appease him or be acceptable to him were dead ones. But we're Christians, because remember, we're different. You know what kind of sacrifices our lives are? They're not dead. They're alive. You know what that means? That means that you and I as Christians are always in the constant process of this weird concept, we are always dying and at the same time living. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, dead. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, I am dead, I am crucified, but yet I am alive. Go through the Roman epistle, the whole thing, and you'll find this. He's constantly saying, you need to be dead in your sins, but alive unto God. He goes back and forth. You were dead, and now you are alive. Mortify your sin so that you might live unto God. And he's going back and forth. Dead, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive. Puritans used to call it mortification. 
It was a fancy word meaning kill sin. That's what it meant. John Owens, the Puritan, said, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Right? And here's what he, so he says to us, right? This is what it means to live the Christian life. We're going to have to close the last one, and then we're going to stop. Colossians 3, would you just close with that and turn that passage with me? There are two deaths mentioned in these verses. Two deaths, and we do this in our lives. This is how we live out living sacrifice. Ready? There are two deaths that we've experienced. Colossians 3.3 says, For you, watch the tense, you have died. Class, what tense is that? Yes. All Christians have a past spiritual death. You have died, right? And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That's the first death, past. We died, have already died, we died with Christ. Now watch, we're not done. How does verse 5 start? Yes, present tense, put to death. So we have a past death and we have a present death. And we live it out every day. One is positional and one is practical. You know what that is? Living sacrifice. We were dead and we're alive all at the same time. He says, I'm going to teach you in this chapter, and I'm going to show you very practically how you do that in relationships. How do you do that in your personal walk as you fight sin? How you do it in your marriage? How you do it at work? How you do it at church? Wherever you are. Because the only proper response to the magnitude of mercy that we've been lavished on with Christ is worship. And it looks like this first process, living sacrifice, always dying so that we might live. Let's pray.